You're listening to the Veritas Podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. We're helping move the hearts and minds of more college students to believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, find us on social media at Veritas Como. We hope you're encouraged by this message. So, uh, Kanye's been in the news lately, yeah? Changing his name, drops a record, shout out to Donda. Dude, track four slaps, I don't care who you are. Um, Now, say what you want about Kanye, but one thing you can't deny, you cannot deny that Kanye is never, he's never been shy about speaking his mind, has he? Particularly, particularly when it comes to Kanye telling everyone what Kanye thinks about Kanye, right? And what does Kanye think about Kanye? Well, he thinks this. I'm my favorite rapper, okay? I am the number one human being in music. That means any person that's living or breathing is number two. Good. I'm Warhol. I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. Gets better. My greatest pain my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. I mean, who says that, right? <laughs> Kanye, I guess. That's the point. Now, I'll be fair to Kanye. I have no idea. Most of this stuff is old. He said this years ago. I have no idea if Kanye West really believes these things about Kanye West anymore. But even if he doesn't, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, even if he doesn't, many people do, right? In fact, one publication recently said it like this. Sales influence success. Kanye West hits every mark that makes somebody one of the greatest artists of all time. He has done more than enough to earn the title of greatest artist of this century. Nobody else really comes close. Nobody else really comes close. Is Kanye the GOAT? Is he the greatest of all time? Is he one of the greatest? I don't really care, to be honest. That's not my point. No, my, my greater interest, the thing that I've been thinking more as I've been you know, reflecting on these quotes and, and, and all of these things is this obsession that I think that we have in our culture with greatness. This quest to be great, to be somebody, to make a difference in the world for different reasons, sure, but I think it's true. I think it's true that, that for many, if not most, especially young people, For most of us, there's this prevailing desire. It's almost an obsession that we have with greatness. We want to be great. Now, who doesn't want to be great? But of course, the question is, then, what is greatness? What does it mean to be great? What makes someone great? Is it, like that quote said, is it sales? Is it money, success, fame, influence? Is that what it is? Well, I think for a lot of people, the answer to that question is, yeah, it it for sure is. Maybe that's why nearly three-quarters of of Gen Z, you all, and millennials, me, three-quarters of us in the United States are following influencers on YouTube and social media. We're chasing greatness. But even more than that, over 55%, so more than half of us, same demographic, we're not just following influencers. We want to become influencers ourselves, at least according to one study. We want to become influencers ourselves. We jump at the chance. If someone gave us the opportunity to become an influencer, of course we jump at the chance. Who wouldn't want to do that, right? We want to chase greatness. 
Some aren't willing to wait around either. They're, they're taking measures into their own hands. Two years ago, get this, two years ago, 2019, over 55% of plastic surgeons in the United States reported having patients that specifically wanted surgery for what? To look better in selfies. 55% of surgeons, plastic surgeons in the United States, two years ago, imagine, it's probably gone up, I don't know, I just made that up, but it seems like it probably went up, reported having patients that wanted to look better in selfies. They're having surgery to look better on social media. Now, maybe you think that's outrageous. I think that it makes a lot of sense. See, I think that a culture that is obsessed with wanting to be great is always going to look for, it's always going to try to find new ways to become great. And the more obsessed with greatness we are, the more obsessed we'll become with ourselves. The two go hand in hand. And just to be clear, this is not an out there problem, right? It's easy to sit up here and say, culture, culture, culture. It's not an out there problem, right? This isn't just a culture issue. This is a, a Christian issue, too, because we want greatness. We Christians, we too want to be great. There's a church advertisement uh, a few years ago, not our church, uh, around Christmas time. Um, wish I had a picture, but I don't. But this is what the advertisement said This is the greatest story ever told. One story is more powerful and dynamic than any other story the world has ever known, and you are the main character. Come. The greatest story ever told. This is a church ad, right, around Christmas. The greatest story ever told, and you are the main character. That sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds really good. It sounds empowering. It sounds encouraging. It sounds uh, affirming. Of course, it's completely wrong. That's not the story of the Bible at all. The Bible isn't the story of you and me. It's not us being the main character. But my guess is the people that made this ad, they're not dumb. I don't think they're dumb. I think they know what they're doing. I think they're really good at what they do. I think they know what people want, even church people. I think they know that even us, we want to be great. We want to be important. We want to be influential. We want to be successful. We too, we want greatness. I say we because I do too. I, I, I mentioned this recently. I told some people that I had to write a paper when I was in seminary, when I was in grad school. I was a 10-page paper, and we were given, our professor gave us one, one kind of prompt, and he said, write about this for 10 pages. This was the prompt he gave us. He said, reflect on whatever aspect of your understanding, personality, or character that might be the most problematic for a diligent and faithful Ministry. In other words, what he told us to do is reflect for 10 pages on the thing that was most likely to bring our ministry, our future ministry down. Yikes. Not a fun paper to write. You know what I spent 10 pages writing about, reflecting on, admitting, confessing? I want to be great. I want to be great. In my weaker moments, I want my life, I want my ministry. I don't even know if I... It's true. In my weaker moments, I want my life, I want my ministry, I want it to be about me. I want it to be about me more than sometimes I want it to be about Jesus. I want people like you to think that I'm a really big deal. It sounds so silly to say it in front of you, but it's true. It's a struggle. It's not something I've gotten over. It's, honestly, it's probably something that I'll always struggle with. This desire that I have that wants you to think that I'm a somebody. That I'm a somebody. I'm, I'm not. I know I'm not, but I want it. 
I want it. Maybe you do too. Maybe for you, being a somebody is in chasing greatness, chasing success, is why you're burning yourself out trying to be at the top of your class. Maybe it's why you're spending so much time hiding who you really are and instead posting a curated version of your life on social media. Maybe chasing greatness is why dating, why, why dating that guy or that girl, why it's such a big deal. If only you could get that relationship, well, then I'd be great. Maybe it's getting into the fraternity or the sorority that you recently got into or into the organization that you think has the most influence, whatever that is on campus. Maybe, maybe chasing greatness mean, means being the best at your position on your athletic team. Maybe it means knowing the most about the Bible, knowing the most about Jesus, knowing the most about theology. See, it's different things for different people, yeah? It's different things for different people, but we can all relate. And here's the thing, we definitely aren't alone. This cultural obsession, this, this personal, let's personalize it, this personal obsession that we have with greatness, with self-promotion, it's not a new problem. It's been around for a long time, a long time. You see, Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, 2,000 years ago when the New Testament was written in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Jesus' closest friends, they, they argued, they struggled, they constantly asked Jesus, Jesus, who's the greatest? So in, in Matthew chapter 18, 1, this is what we read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know, Jesus, who is the greatest? Tell us. Mark 9, the disciples came to Capernaum. When Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? See, Jesus knew. Jesus knew that they were arguing about something, but they kept quiet because on the way, they were caught, right? Didn't want to say it. But on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So again, the disciples are arguing about who the greatest is. Luke, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Luke 22, a dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatness. See, here's the point. The the, the Greatness was the disciples' goal and obsession as much as it is ours. Greatness was the disciples' goal and obsession as much as it is ours. But here's the thing. I want you to hear this because right now you're probably thinking, hey, but is that bad? No. Greatness isn't the problem. Wanting to be great is not the problem. The pursuit of greatness, our desire to be great, your desire to be great, that's not bad. It's not wrong. It's just that our definition of where greatness comes from and what it looks like often is. That's what's wrong. Where we think greatness comes from, where we think great, what we think greatness looks like. See, our culture, it says what? It says that greatness comes from things like fame and success, influence, self-promotion. But what Jesus does when he interacts with that is he takes it and he says, uh-uh, and turns it upside down. He turns it on his head. He said, you know what? You want to be great? You want to be great? You want to, be, you want to chase greatness? If you want to be great, then here's what you got to do. You got to be humble. You see, greatness looks like and comes from, according to Jesus, humility. Last week, we looked at a passage. If you were here at Veritas, we, or on campus, rather, we, we looked at a passage, if you remember, from John chapter 1, where, where Jesus has this interaction with two guys, and he asks them a question. He asks them, what are you looking for? And by the end of the passage, what's he doing? He's saying, come and see. 
Whatever it is you're looking for, I want you to come and see. Well, tonight, Jesus shows us who he really is by what he does. We'll pick up in John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Now, now let me say, I, I'm doing this again. I'm stopping really quickly. The Passover festival, what is that? Sometimes we, we read verses and we kind of like, what does that mean? The Passover festival was a, was a Jewish holiday that commemorated long, long, long ago the Jews' liberation from slavery in, in Egypt. And so, so for the Passover festival, people are in Jerusalem. This is what's going on. It's just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew... What did he know? He knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to be with the Father. Now, I want us to pause here again because I want us to catch Jesus knew. What did he know? He knew that the hour had come. How did Jesus know that? Because Jesus was God. In Jesus, Jesus knows all things, and in him, all things hold together. He knew that his hour had come. He knew this is the last night of his life. He knew that he would soon be betrayed by one of his friends, Judas. He knew that he'd be beaten. He knew that he was about to be murdered on a cross for a crime that he didn't commit. He knew it all. And yet, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that he was about to die. He knew that he was about to be handed over by a friend. And he loves his own who are in the world. He loved them to the end. How? The evening meal was in progress. So this is the Last Supper. Evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, his friend, one of the disciples, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, I want us to catch this, the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So again, Jesus knows something. He knows that he's been given all power. Jesus knows that he has power over all things. Paul, in the book of Colossians, another book in the New Testament, he says Jesus has power over all things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, Jesus has power over all things. All things have been created in him. All things have been created through him. All things have been created for him. Jesus has power over it all. How would Jesus use his power? How is Jesus going to use his power, this power that he has over every single thing that's ever been made on the last night of his life? So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them, around him. But that doesn't make any sense, right? That, that, that couldn't be true. It couldn't be true that, that Jesus uses his greatness, Jesus uses his power on the last night of his life to wash the disciples' feet. See, this would have been shocking. We don't quite get this. It's just kind of weird to us, to be honest, like Jesus washing people. It's just weird to us. But in that day, it was shocking. It was shocking and unexpected. Not that foot washing was taking place, because that was common enough. In ancient Palestine, people walked around dusty, dirty roads in sandals, and so feet were often dirty. And so washing feet, you probably know this, it's standard hospitality at a meal like this. So the fact that someone was washing feet wasn't shocking. What was shocking is who was doing the washing. It was Jesus. See, back then, 
Disciples served their teacher, not the other way around. Even more, foot washing itself was considered too demeaning for disciples, and so foot washing was often relegated to to non-Jewish slaves and servants, the lowest of the low in society. And so what Jesus is doing is not how you would expect powerful, a powerful person to act. It's not what powerful people did. You see, powerful people were supposed to rule. Powerful people were supposed to use their influence. Powerful people were supposed to be great, to be served, not serve. Jesus' disciples, they knew this. Look at how Peter responds. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize, you don't have a clue what I'm doing, Peter. But later you'll understand. No, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. So you can almost get the scene, right? Like the disciples, these close friends of Jesus, guys that have been living with Jesus the last several years, they're, they're embarrassed by what Jesus is doing. Masters don't wash feet. But Jesus wasn't just washing feet. Let's keep going. Jesus answered to Peter, he said, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then, Lord, Peter says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. Last week, I mentioned that Jesus loves to ask questions. Jesus loves to ask questions, not because he didn't know the answer, but because he wanted the people that he asked to answer the question. He loves to ask questions, and we're going to spend some time over the next couple weeks looking at some of these questions, these questions that, frankly, change the trajectory of people's lives. That's one of those questions. Do you understand what I've done, to you, done for you? Do you understand what I've done for you? See, when the answer to that question is yes, when we start to understand what Jesus has done, not just for them, but for us, everything changes. Everything changes. See, when when Jesus asked the disciples this question, do you understand what I've done for you? The short answer was no. They they didn't understand what Jesus had done had done for him, they couldn't have because Jesus, remember I said this, Jesus wasn't just washing feet, Jesus was doing something else. Jesus was pointing forward, pointing his disciples to something else. He was pointing them to his death. See, the cleansing of their feet, it foreshadowed the cleansing of their sin because of the rebellion against God. It it foreshadowed the cleansing of their sin through Jesus' own death and resurrection. The disciples, they couldn't fathom their master washing their feet. If anything, they should be the ones washing his feet. But remember, we looked at this verse earlier when we were singing. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to what? To give his life as a ransom. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many Some people, college students, often ask me, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? What is a a man who claimed to be God dying 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with me right now? It's a fair question. And to be honest, the, the New Testament gives us several answers, but one of the answers that it gives us is exactly what Jesus just said. He came to give his life 
as a ransom for many. What does that word mean? What does it, what does it mean when it says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom? Well, let's, let's take a second and, and talk about some Old Testament law. Now, I know that's why you came to Veritas, right? To talk about Old Testament law. But hang with me because I think it unlocks, the understand, it unlocks some understanding for us. It unlocks the key to what Jesus is doing, what he's talking about. See, in the Old Testament, when someone accidentally killed someone else, that person, as it would seem as obvious as it is, that person incurred the guilt of what they'd done. Meaning the accidental killer in the Old Testament could either be put to death for what they'd done, or they could pay a ransom for the accidental death that they took. That was the law. That was the system. And so in the same way, God applies this to his people, to Israel, and, and, and they could only be purified from the collective guilt. Remember, sin isn't ever just about ourselves. It affects other people. They could only be purified in the Old Testament by the collective guilt that they had incurred of the rebellion against God by doing what? By giving the life of an unblemished lamb in their place. And what did that unblemished lamb do? That sacrificial lamb, it rescued them from their guilt. By dying in their place, it rescued them. It purified them from their sin. Okay, but what does that have to do with Jesus? That's all the Old Testament law we'll get into. What does that have to do with Jesus? What Jesus is doing, by calling himself a ransom, Jesus is suggesting not just Israel, but every human being, all of humanity, has incurred guilt before God because of sin. We don't like this, but this is what Jesus is saying, that all of humanity has incurred guilt before God because of sin, but rather, this is the best news, right? Rather than paying for their own guilt with their own lives, Jesus offers his life, an unblemished life, as their ransom. See, Jesus gave his life. He took the penalty of our sins so that we could be ransomed, so that we could be purified, so that we could be forgiven by God forever. See, the cleansing of the disciples' feet, it pointed to the spiritual cleansing that they really needed. It points to our need. The spiritual cleansing that, that we need, that you need, that I need, it points to that because of our sin. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5, 8, maybe. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When? When did Jesus die for us? When you cleaned yourself up? When you got it all figured out, when you did enough, when you became enough, when you learned enough, some of us, that's a story that we've been told, right? You gotta clean yourself up. You gotta get right with God. You gotta learn enough, do enough, know enough, become enough. You gotta do enough of the right stuff. You're exhausted trying to be enough and you're not. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, no, while we were still his enemies, while we were still in sin, Jesus died for us. See, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, when you start to get it, what Jesus has done for you, you realize, we realize that it is the best news that we could ever hear. And it's not just us, the disciples too, because remember, how did Peter respond when he finally got it? He said, then wash all of me. Not just my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash all of me. And that's what Jesus does. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's offering you. 1 John 1, 9, 
if we confess our sins, if we bring our sins to God, if we tell him, if we confess to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, when Jesus forgives us, we use that word a lot. We say that a lot. When Jesus forgives us, though, what that really means is that he no longer holds our sin against us. He no longer holds your sin against you when he says, forgiven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when Jesus says forgiven, you are actually forgiven? I don't care what you've done. When you confess your sins to Jesus... When you put your trust and your hope and your faith and your love in him, he says forgiven. He cancels our debt. He purifies us. He removes the defilement that our sin causes. See, our sin problem, it's really just a relational problem. We, we tend to think of sin as, as, as breaking rules, right? That's, that's probably how a lot of us have grown up. Sin is, is breaking God's rules. But see, that's not really how the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin more as betraying a relationship. Sin isn't breaking God's rules. It's betraying a relationship with him. Jesus died to make what was broken whole. That's what happens when Jesus cleanses us from our sin. He makes what's broken whole. But Jesus He's not just pointing to something in the future. He's not just telling the disciples. He's not just foreshadowing a spiritual cleansing for them. He's doing something for them there in the present. He's got something. He's saying that, that what I'm doing right now has real meaning right now. This is what he says. Go back to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What does greatness look like according to Jesus? He says, do as I've done. Do as I've done for you. Do that for others. Wash each other's feet. Serve each other. Love each other. Have humility. And what does that mean? What does it mean to have humility? That's a word that we use a lot, hear a lot, talk a lot about. But what is real humility? What does biblical humility look like? Is it, is it deflecting praise, even if we actually deserve it? Is it deflecting it, saying, no, 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 no? Is it self-deprecation? Is it just subtly, instead of overtly drawing attention to ourselves? Is it, is it talking about how humble we are? Of course not. That's false humility, right? No, real humility, biblical humility looks like this. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, real humility, biblical humility says, look not just to what we're about. Look not just to our own interests. Don't just self-promote. Look to the interests of others. Count others more significant than ourselves. C.S. Lewis, British guy, author, wrote Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity. In fact, in Mere Christianity, he's got this great little chapter on humility and pride. And, and, and this is one of the things, a little bit longer quote, but this is what he says. 
He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smart, remember he's British, I don't even know what smarmy means, but he can get away with it. Smarmy person who's always telling you that of course he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what? In what you said to him, not what you had to say. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. He won't be thinking about himself at all. You've probably heard, in fact, C.S. Lewis is the one that said it, that, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of, of yourself less. It's not thinking less of ourselves, it's just thinking of ourselves less. It's cliche, but it's true. But it's not just thinking of ourselves less, it's also, humility is also thinking of others more, and when we think more about them, it's thinking more of them. It's not just thinking of ourselves less, it's thinking of others more, and when we do, we think more of them. What ways do you need to do that? We all need to do that, right? We, we all need a little more humility in our lives. What, what ways do you need to think of yourself less? What ways do you need to think more of others? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, I think we can admit that. It's hard. And, and to be honest, I don't know if you're like me, but I'm guessing you are. Most of the time, it's not really what we want. We don't really want, we want to self-promote. We want to chase greatness. We're Humility, we know we're supposed to want it, but that's not what we always want. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's the humility is, is the greatness that, that Jesus is calling us to. And if that's true and it's hard for us to do it, then how do we grow in it? That's the question, right? If what Jesus is saying is true, then how do we actually grow in humility, I think one of the best ways, one of the best ways that we can learn to grow in humility is look to the perfect example of humility. Jesus himself, fix our eyes on Jesus who, Philippians 2.6 says this, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, by what? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when we, when we see Jesus, when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, it's humbling, isn't it? When we start to realize that's who Jesus is, that's what he's done, it humbles us. That, that kind of love, that kind of humility, that kind of willingness to, to serve people who don't deserve to be served, it puts things into perspective. It puts our lives and our pursuit of greatness it puts it into perspective when we look at Jesus, when we fix our eyes on him. I mentioned earlier that, that several people in Jesus' life, several of his closest friends, 
They were obsessed with greatness as much as we are. They asked him constantly. They argued about it. They wanted it. Jesus, who's great? Who's the greatest? Tell us. What I didn't mention is that Jesus actually answered their question one time. Jesus, tell us who's the greatest. And Jesus says, okay, here you go, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? If you were here last week, John was the guy who had a couple buddies who, who were used to following him, but, but Jesus walks by and John reaches out, yells out, he says, look, the Lamb of God. That's what he says to Jesus. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God. And those two guys, they, they start following Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God. See, what John the Baptist did, he spent his life preparing the way for and pointing other people to Jesus. John was great because he pointed other people to Jesus. What if that was the kind of greatness that you started pursuing? What if that's the kind of greatness that that was true of us, the kind of greatness that all of us here tonight increasingly wanted? The kind of greatness that, that is willing and wants to point other people to Jesus, not ourselves. Seeking greatness in Jesus, not our social status, not, not who we know and who we spend our time with, not success and influence and fame and, and wealth, not a little blue check mark on social media. None of those things are bad, right? None of that stuff is wrong, but the problem is it's mostly about us. What if we made our life more about Jesus? What if that was our mark of greatness? See, I think that's what Jesus is calling all of us to, to make our lives about him. Rick Warren, he's a pastor in California, uh, Saddleback Church. He's also written a, a book, The Purpose Driven Life. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you've read it. It's one of the, the most selling, best-selling nonfiction books in history. Over 35 million copies sold. You know what the first line in this book 35 million copies sold. One of the best-selling nonfiction books in history. You know what the first line of the book is? Four words. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. We aren't the main character of the story. And if we think we are, here's the deal. We're living for a lesser story. If you think that you're living, you're the main character in your story, you are living for a lesser story. And hear this, God has something much bigger, much greater, a bigger story that he's offering you, that he wants to pull you into, that he wants to you to be a part of and play a role in. Don't settle for a lesser story by thinking you're the main character. You're not. Point your life to him. See, that's what Jesus has done for you, what he wants to do in your life if you'll let him. What he's done, it's, it's far greater. It's far greater. What he's done, what he wants to do, far greater than any other kind of greatness that you're seeking for. Any other kind of greatness that you think you want. That's not the greatness you were created for. No, the greatness you were created for was to point other people to him by the way that you live your life. Music team, go ahead and come back. I want you to hear me say this. I genuinely mean it. I want you guys. I want you to be great. I, I really do. But I want you first and foremost to find your greatness in Jesus, not yourself, not anything else. I want you to find your greatness in Jesus. 
Because I am more convinced than I've ever been in my life that when you find your greatness in Jesus, you start to understand, when you start to understand what he's done for you, it changes everything. It changes who you are, the kind of person you want to become, how you live, what you do, how you treat people. You see, love, humility, serving others, pointing, to people to, pointing people to Jesus, that's true greatness. That's real and lasting greatness. That's what it means to be great. Is that what you, is that what you want? Is that what you're living for? Or are you living for a different kind of greatness, a greatness that says, look at me. Guys, I want you to be great. I spent 14 years working with, I want you, I love you, I care about you, I want you to be great, but I want you to spend your life pointing people to Jesus. Lots of different ways to do that. Culture's gonna tell you it's not worth your time, but it is. See, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, it changes everything. It changes the trajectory of our lives. Be a part of that kind of greatness. Not a greatness that says, look at me. Greatness that says, look at him. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, make sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow us on social media at Veritas Como. Thanks again for listening.